Good morning. My wife told me I need to smile more when I'm up here <laughs> because I'm so serious all the time. You guys have known that for all the years you've been with me, right? If I don't know you, my name is Rick Martinez. I am one of the elders here, and I'm blessed to be a part of the leadership team, and I'm going to try to be friendlier. <laughs> I, I, I'm so, I just, you know what, it's like, it's just how I'm wired when it comes to uh, the Word of God. I've never been a real smiley guy. I am outside of here. I'm just, when I get here, I'm a little more serious. Matt's, he's setting a good example for me, though. I'm trying to follow Matt's example. As he said, we are going to begin a new series. And you guys have control of the, uh, for me, right? I'll tell you when I need to go to next slide. So we're going to go through the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We are entitling this series, Not of This World. And um, what I'm going to do today is I am going to kind of give some theology around the subject that will be the dominant theme, not the only theme, but the dominant theme through our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and that is on the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And in Matthew's Gospel, it is mostly called the kingdom of heaven. And we'll find out the reason is because Matthew's writing to a a Jewish audience primarily, And as we even said this morning in our time of worship, the Jews would not even utter the name of God. It would not come out of their mouths because of its holiness. And so they, in Matthew's gospel, he referred to it as the the kingdom of, of heaven. But it is the same. They are the same thing. Luke and Mark refer to it more commonly as the kingdom of God. They're, they're the same. Sometimes you might have heard that, well, there's a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. There isn't. They are speaking of the same truth, the same reality. So I'm going to give some theology about the kingdom of God today, some not super deep theology, but important theology. And if you've been in our church for a length of time, you've probably heard some of this. But let me just preface what I'm going to say by saying that I really believe that my understanding, and I'm speaking for myself, of the kingdom from my past was too narrow. I feel like what God has done is he's enlarging my understanding of what the kingdom of God is. And I have to tell you honestly, too, that I've jettisoned some things that I used to believe. And maybe I've not jettisoned them in entirety, but I have, they've changed in my understanding. And one of the predominant ways they've changed will come down to how it's practically, um, what it practically means to, to be in God's kingdom. And I'll explain that more to you as I go along. I have two texts this morning that I want to read as we begin. I'm not going to teach these texts. I'm going to use them to uh, begin. And then we're going to do a lot of looking at some other scriptures. So get ready because I will have you open your Bibles and look at some other texts. But to begin with, go to a very familiar scripture we've looked at a number of times in the last few months, Acts 1. Seems like we're never getting out of the book of Acts. Can I say to you, too, God is, he is, how do I say this? I don't want to sound, I really believe we are living in a time right now when God is speaking clearly. He always speaks, but sometimes I really believe he speaks more clearly than others, and he's emphasizing some things. And there's a sovereign 
sense in my heart of God's desire for us to understand some things. And I really believe our, our focusing on what we did in Acts, on the power and the witness of the gospel through the church is one aspect of it, and I really believe what we're going to be doing in Matthew is another. And a third, which works with it inseparably, is our study in the book of Revelation on Sunday morning. Can I encourage you to come to that? I know it's not easy. It starts at 9 o'clock. And, but I'm, I'm telling you, I really believe that what God is speaking is through that book right now is incredibly important. And it connects with what we're going to be looking at in, in Matthew really, really powerfully. So I'm just throwing that out as an encouragement. I know it's online. That's great. If you listen to it online, that's great. But there's something about being here, too. So let me encourage you. God is speaking to us right now. Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. Let me read this quickly. I'm not even going through one. I'm not going to go through 11. In, in the first book, O Theophilus, Luke referring to his gospel, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. For 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension, he presented himself alive. We talked about that last Sunday on Easter Sunday. And he, he presented himself alive with many proofs. And he spoke to them about this, the kingdom of God. Now turn with me to Daniel, if you can find it in your Bibles. Chapter 7. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. And Daniel follows Ezekiel. So if you can find Ezekiel, you'll be able to find Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. I'll give you a minute to turn there. This is an important text. I'm going to refer to this probably next week as I continue what I'm beginning today. I'm going to continue next week. But I want to put this in our hearts and in our minds because we're going to be looking at a number of texts from the Old Testament, the importance of understanding the kingdom of God. Daniel 7, verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Father, in the name of Jesus, we continue with awe in our hearts today as we touch this subject that I know, Lord Jesus, is so important to your heart. And we pray today, Father, that by the Spirit of God who is among us and who indwells us, that you would speak to us. And again, we ask that you'd bypass our intellectual only abilities, not that we are abandoning them, but Lord, that you would speak to us by the Spirit of God in our hearts, that we might understand truths that cannot be known in any other way. So we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus, during his 40 days, spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and he told them to wait for the gift that the Father would give them, the Father had promised. And he said, this gift will enable you to testify, to witness to this kingdom of which I am teaching you. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Catch this now. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit that you might have the power to testify and to witness of this kingdom about which I am teaching you. So the first question that we must ask and answer, and this is our first slide, is what is a kingdom? What is a kingdom? First slide, please. Thank you, Harmony. You're awesome. What is a kingdom? I smiled when I said that. Did you see that? In our kingdom, in our, in, our, in our culture, in our Western idiom, a kingdom is primarily thought to be a reign, a reign over which a king exercises his authority, a realm, if you would. Webster defines kingdom as this way, the rank, quality, state, or attributes of a king, royal authority, dominion, monarchy, kingship, makes sense. And I will say that it may be a realm. In fact, it is a realm for sure. And it probably does include the people that are within that realm. But first of all, listen now carefully, listen carefully. First of all, it is the authority to rule. It is the sovereignty of the king. The kingdom is not just the people. It is not just the realm. It is the authority of the king, of the one who is ruling. Now, that's important. We're going to remember that. We're going to talk about that. It's going to become common to us in, its, in what it, its inferences. Regarding the, the kingdom of God, Psalm 145, 13 says, Your kingdom, O Lord, is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion, listen to the words, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. In Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar about his kingdom, Daniel says this to the king. He says, you, O king, he calls him the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. So we see from these texts that biblically power and might and glory are all synonyms for the kingdom. Power and might and glory. They speak of the authority of the king of the one who is ruling. But also of another king in Daniel of Belshazzar, it was said, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and he has brought it to an end. And this is important for us to understand because it keeps us from putting our focus on something other than what is truly the kingdom of God. There are many kingdoms, but all of those kingdoms will come to an end. But only God's kingdom will endure forever. Say amen. amen. The kingdom is not the church, as some people might believe. The kingdom is not a people, but it is God's righteous authority. It's his holy dominion being exercised. And that's why even during our worship time, as I was praying, I, was, I spoke, I believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
that whether the man on the street knows it or not, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's why the Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. He will not become Lord of all. He is Lord of all right now. And that's an amazing truth that we're going to unpack in our study of Matthew as well. So what characterizes the, the, this kingdom that the Lord Jesus Christ was so intent on teaching and preaching and revealing and demonstrating through his power? In fact, you would have to say that the kingdom of God was the life message of Jesus Christ. He came preaching the kingdom of God. That was his life message. What is the kingdom of God? And what characterizes this kingdom over and against all other kingdoms, the kingdom of men? And I would say to you as we begin, and this is going to be important that you listen to this now carefully, that the coming of the kingdom of God must first be understood as the realization of the great drama of salvation history in the sense of the Old Testament, beginning in the Old Testament, and with the nation of Israel. The coming of the kingdom must first be understood as the realization of the great drama of salvation history, which in obviously beginning in the Old Testament and including primarily the nation of Israel. So I asked myself this question, what did the people hear in Judea when John the Baptist preached the need for repentance because, quote, the kingdom of heaven was at hand? What did they think when they heard him say, you need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is in hand? They knew exactly what he meant by the kingdom of heaven. There was no confusion in their mind at all. Because even though the words kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are not found in the Old Testament, the reference to God's kingdom is throughout the Old Testament. And what they understood about it was very, very clear to them. And this is where our understanding of kingdom must begin as well. There are a few phrases that use the words in connection with God's dominion, but very, very, very few. Its origin and its primary roots regarding the kingdom are connected to Israel's national life. The Jew thought when he heard him speak of it, they were thinking of our national life. Our nation, our existence, who we are as a people right now. But during the time of, of, of Israel's national existence, uh, they began through God's sovereign plan to decline in their, uh, in their, their, their recognition of who they were because of outside powers coming to crush them, Assyria, Babylon, and so on. And so there became in their minds a tension between God's kingship over them as a nation and then his commitment to the world at large, his kingship or his lordship over the world at large. There was What part did Israel play was in their minds a question in relation to the rest of the world because they didn't appear that God 
was dealing with them at times any differently than he would any other nation. He allowed them to be crushed. He allowed them to go into exile. But it was this tension that was then addressed by the later prophets who began to speak of the coming, another coming manifestation. Listen, another coming manifestation of God's kingdom. Are you following me? Originally, it was all about them. Suddenly, it became about more than them through the prophetic word. And there began to become a new expectation. The prophets began to speak of something new, a future prophetic revelation that began to become the center of the Old Testament prophet promise of salvation for Israel. For example, Isaiah 40, not 40 verses 9 to 11. Turn there, Isaiah 40. 9 to 11. I'm going to do this quickly for the sake of time. And so this, this understanding of, the, of, of their part in this prophetic uh, history was, was beginning to be stretched and enlarged where it, become, it was only national at one point. It was now being enlarged. And Isaiah speaks this in verse 9 of chapter 40. Go on a high, up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, and say to the cities of God, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will carry, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. He begins to, they begin to enlarge their understanding of, of what was their place in, in God's salvation plan. But the predominant feature of this description of the coming kingdom as it pertained to Israel was that Israel would be restored as a nation. And the Lord would have his throne in Jerusalem. And all of Israel's enemies would be defeated. But what was also being heard then was that this coming kingdom had a clear spiritual reality and fulfillment. It was not just going to be an earthly fulfillment. There was going to be a spiritual fulfillment as well. And it would be inaugurated by the great coming day of the Lord and a day of judgment. And the prophets begin to speak of this day of the Lord. There would be a judgment both for apostate Israel and for the nations in general. And there would be salvation for the oppressed, the oppressed of the Lord. And this coming salvation would be imperishable. Isaiah speaks of this coming salvation in chapter 51. And Isaiah began to speak with other prophets of a new heaven and a new earth, and that death would be annihilated and that the dead would be raised. So what, we, but what began regarding the kingdom is only being for national Israel because of the tension they were living under and because of the exile of the Assyrian the northern kingdom and then the Babylonian kingdom. Even though Isaiah is writing before the Babylonian captivity, he's foreseeing what's going to be happening, and he's telling them that this kingdom is greater than just you and I. It has a future fulfillment that is spiritual. They're beginning to be enlarged, even though they didn't understand it. But that's important for us to remember. For, for the Jew and for the people of Israel, it would be the reign of the Messiah. 
And though it was primarily national, they knew that something more was coming. And it was tied inseparably, and we won't have time to read this, but if you have time, read it on your own. It was tied inseparably separably to the promise that was made to David in 2 Samuel 7, that he would have a son on the throne forever. And of course, it wasn't Solomon. It was speaking of the Messiah. And they understood that there was something more. There was another reign. But this thought of it being for them primarily was still in their hearts and minds. And so when John the Baptist comes preaching, you can see how what they would have heard was that he was speaking of the coming Messiah. And that the reign of the Messiah was at hand for the nation of Israel. That's what they heard. That's what they thought when they heard, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's time for the Messiah to come. And here's what's remarkable is that was even the lenses that John believed it was, he saw it through. This is for us. It's for us right now. This coming kingdom is for us right now. It's for the nation of Israel right now. Yes, we know it has a future fulfillment also, but it is primarily for us right now is what John believed. And how do we know that's true? Because in Matthew, a little while later, after he's put in jail, he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, I'm confused. Tell me, are you the Messiah or not? Aren't you the one that was supposed to come and bring peace to us and freedom to us? Why am I in jail? And Jesus' answer is very confusing. And he sends his disciples back and he says, tell John not to be offended and stumble over me. He says, because are not the sight being given blind and are not the deaf hearing? What kind of an answer is that? That has nothing to do with what we believed it was to be. And so we're going to begin to understand more and more from Jesus' perspective from God's perspective, what this kingdom is. But the question that we must ask and answer is, what did Jesus mean by the coming of the kingdom? And maybe equally important, what didn't he mean? The answer is only possible through the kerygma, the the kerygma, the, the preaching of the gospel that we hear in the Gospels, because they are continually referring to the Old Testament. So we're going to have to unpack, what did Jesus mean when he spoke of the kingdom? Let me begin by saying this. In order to understand the nature of God's kingdom, as Jesus was speaking, and now this is getting, it's all been important, but this is very important. How many of you have followed me so far? Are you able to follow what I'm saying? Right, anybody confused? Other than the usual people? <laughs> Smiling. <laughs> In order to understand the nature of God's kingdom, we have to understand what the Bible teaches about a word that is used throughout the Bible, and it is the word age, A-G-E. There are two, among many, there are two primary words that are used in the New Testament that are translated world. The first is the word cosmos. Cosmos speaks of something that is orderly, 
something that is in harmony, like the universe, like the human body, like what science discovers. It's the, it's the order of God's creation, the cosmos. Something that has proper arrangement. Easy to understand that word. How many of you guys saw recently, they, just, they took a picture of a black hole? Was that amazing? Incredible. It's like, I forget how many billions of times larger than the sun. They took a picture of a black hole. The universe is in its order, is perfect. Everything is exactly right. But there's another word that's translated world in the Greek, ion, or in English, eons. You've heard that word, eons and eons. That's the word age. There's no thought of order or structure, but rather it designates a period of time. Throughout time. In fact, when we were looking at, I was looking at the, uh, the slide Matt made, not of this world. In my mind, I was I'm wondering, what did we read when we read the word world? When we think of the word world, not of this world, Christians are not of this world, what are you thinking of? Do you think of probably this world, this existence right now, what's right in front of my face? That's not the word. It's the word eon. It's age. We are not of this age. When we trace this word in the New Testament, we find that it is, it, 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 in the course of God's redemptive purpose, there are two ages. There is this present evil age, Paul calls it, and there is the age to come. Two ages, that's all. There's the present age, Paul calls it evil, and there is the age to come. Dean was talking about it this morning in the Revelation class. What characterizes this present age that we're living in? When did this present age begin? Any theology students? This present age began in Genesis chapter 3. When man fell. So something radically changed in the course of human history. In Genesis 3, Genesis, when man sinned and Satan, the usurper, gained right the right over this existence that we live in right now. But there is another age, and it is the age that is yet to come. It is the age that eternally pre-existed and it is the age that God himself dominates and is king and supreme over. And that is the age that is of the kingdom of God. In the New Testament revelation that Paul picks up on, that Jesus preaches, that Jesus begins to demonstrate, now listen, is that a great change of ages has taken place. That the center of all history was Christ's coming. The center of human history was the coming of Christ. 
his victory over satanic, demonic, dark forces took place. His victory over death and his resurrection is the center of human history. And so it is, listen, listen carefully. Jesus Christ is now in control of the course of the things of this world, even in their natural aspect. Now, has God always been sovereign? Yes. But the usurper was given legal right to the things of the earth through the fall. When Jesus Christ came, he took back that legal right and gave it back to man under the dominion, under the authority of God. It's not perfect because we're imperfect and because we live in the, in the, in the, in the, in the battlefield of present evil age. But not only does his power control the age we live in, but it also is the authority over the age, obviously, that is yet to come. So this is the amazing, this is, this is why it's so hard to be a Christian. Because we're living in a present age that Paul calls evil, that is dominated by still the, 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 the power of the satanic, the course of the, of, the, of the spirit of the age and the spirit of the air, Paul refers to it, that, that sets the course for, for the nations and for the governments and for the systems of the world, what Dean was talking about in the Revelation class. But the age to come which is the, the reign of God's kingdom has invaded it in the person of Christ. In Ephesians 1.21, Paul describes the exaltation of Christ as being far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There's no question right now who is Lord right now. Satan knows who's Lord. He just doesn't want anyone else to know. It's amazing how we as the church so many times don't know, or at least act like we don't know, or live as though we don't know. When Paul speaks of these ages, he's not thinking of two worlds. He's thinking of two ages. There is, there is no thought of two orders of society, but there are two periods of time. And what separated these two ages was, this, was, was the coming of Christ, and then we find that ultimately the second coming will bring the fulfillment completely. And the contrast between these two ages is very, very distinct in Scripture. That's why Jesus makes these radical statements that are black and white statements. If you love money, 
you can't love God. Essentially is what he says. The love of the world makes you an enemy of God. What's the word world there? Eon, age. This age. The Middle Ages was in this age. The Age of Enlightenment was in this age. The glory of the United States and its heydays in this age. Until Christ returns, we're living in this present evil age. But the power of it has been broken at the cross. The power of Satan's dominion. It's just that the lost don't know it. We do. Don't we? Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Look at that, if you would, with me, please. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Man, that time is gone. We find both of these words for world in this one verse. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following, here's the word, eon, I own, the course of this cosmos. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the character of this age bears the stamp of the prince of the power of the air. Dean was talking about that in the class this morning again. That we're not looking for a 666 on the forehead or on the hand. It's the stamp of the spirit of the air on the human heart that has been in the heart of man since the fall. Just as the seal of God is on the forehead of those that are his. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Lord knows there are those that are his own. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 or chapter 4, Paul calls Satan the God of this age. Little g. And he says that he works to blind the minds of unbelievers. How many of you were blinded at one time? Yes by the God of this age. And it is the root of evil, blindness and darkness and unbelief. And we know that it is obvious then that the kingdom of God, that Jesus Christ came preaching, and this is my point as I bring this first part to a close, the kingdom of God that Jesus came preaching does not belong to this present age. This is radical stuff, guys. The kingdom of God is from another age. It's the age to come. 
But it was the age that has always existed in God's realm. Revelation 15.3 says that the Lamb is the king of the ages. Revelation, I'm telling you guys, Revelation, God is speaking. It's time to read the book of Revelation and understand it. And this age is therefore in direct rebellion against the rule of God. So the New Testament sets this present evil age in direct opposition to the age to come. So we're living as Christians in this this tension. So when you watch some stupid show on TV that everybody else is watching, And we all do it. Hopefully you don't do it too much. Filthy Game of Thrones, if you watch that crud. That's the spirit of the age. That's the spirit of this age. That's what's evil. It's filth. It defiles. And yet here we are of another age, born of another age, which I'm going to, unpack for us more. Giving our hearts to something that is in opposition to to the way of God. Galatians 1, 3, and 4. I'll close with this. Turn there with me. It's such a key text, and I love this text. As I know you do too. Galatians 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, who gave himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the, the, the glory forever and ever. Jesus Christ came preaching another kingdom, another, uh, another age. It wasn't the kingdom the Jews expected. It was broader than the one they expected. I have to talk about this more next week. It included what they Expected, but it was bigger than that. And because it was, they stumbled over it. Because they had an expectation of the messianic reign being one way, and it came in another. Because Jesus' mission was greater than just the nation of Israel. And so Galatians teaches us that salvation and healing and forgiveness and deliverance and mercy and peace are all expressions and characteristics of the age to come. Eternal life belongs to which age? The age to come. And what is so remarkable and so awe-inspiring, and we need to be in awe of God, is that the age to come, listen, 
The age to come has come into this present evil age. And Jesus said this very simply to prove this. He said in Matthew chapter 12, we're going to look at it when we get there. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God or by the finger of God, he said, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's that simple. The age to come. And the way that it's described, and we'll look at this more next week, the way that it's described in the New Testament is that it came as an invasion, a rescue mission. Colossians teaches us, chapter 1. God invaded in Jesus Christ this present evil age to rescue mankind and to take from the grip of Satan the illegal authority that he exercised over man due to Adam's sin and to pay a price that only Jesus could pay so that man would once again have his rightful place before God. And the church now exists to testify to this present reign, this age to come reign, and to witness to it in the midst of a dead and dying world. And so, brothers and sisters, we are not of this age. We are of the age to come. Amen. I have a lot more to say. I'll have to say it next week. But we want to get this theology of the kingdom clear in our hearts and minds. It's a lot broader than what I've thought of it in the past. I even told Matt and Dean this week, I'm rethinking, I'm, I'm still rethinking the fact that we've always said we need to further the kingdom. We need to further the kingdom. I've come to the point where I'm, I don't believe we further the kingdom. I believe what we do is we receive the kingdom. God is the only one who can further the kingdom. Now, does he use us to do it? Perhaps. But we aren't the ones who have the ability to further it. It's not our mandate to further it. Did you hear that? Ours is to testify to it, to witness to it, to live in it, to receive it, to understand it, to declare it, to preach it, to show it forth. But it is God's to extend it by the Spirit of God. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, I pray that you've whet the appetite of your church this morning. And tweaked us in our understanding to begin to rethink, even at a very basic level, the Christian life, what it is and what it isn't. Lord, we, of all people, need to know these things. They need to become increasingly true to our hearts and real in our experience. 
so that we're not always trying to change the behavior of people. We're not trying to change the way they act all the time. Make them, quote-unquote, better Christians. But we believe that it is grace, Lord. It is grace that leads us to obedience. Obedience is being the fruit of faith. And so I pray, Father, that as we see truths that are deeper and greater truths about who we really are, that it would awaken us in us the understanding of our true identity as sons and daughters of God, as sons and daughters of the kingdom. And that, Lord, the greatness of this kingdom and the beauty of this kingdom and the power of this kingdom and the, the life of this kingdom would begin to become more and more the desire of our heart. Lord Jesus, if it was so important that you would come and preach it exclusively and demonstrate it predominantly, how important it is for us to understand it. And I pray that we would understand it as Paul understood it as the apostles understood it, that they understood that the mission of Jesus Christ to go to the cross was necessary for the fulfillment of the kingdom. Help us, Lord, with these truths. Help us to understand these things. Open the book of Revelation to us. Open the gospel of Matthew to us. Speak to us, Spirit of God, in this day. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who are hungry for you. We love you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, Father, amen.